0: Good morning, afternoon, or evening to everyone. My name is Frank Place, and I am the Director of the Policies, Institutions, and Markets CGIR Research Program. I am pleased to welcome you to today's webinar on Methods for Studying Gender Dynamics and Value Chains Beyond the Production Node and Single Commodity Analysis. This is the second and final webinar in the series on gender dynamics and value chains. The first one focused on findings and was presented on September 21st, and this will focus on methods. These collaborative studies were the last of three funded by the CGIR collaborative platform for gender research while it was hosted under PIM. Gender dynamics and seed systems and feminization of agriculture were the other two. This one on value chains mirrors the interest of the 2030 CGIR research and innovation strategy to support food systems beyond food production, just to provide jobs and income for the poor and marginalized and to provide healthier diets and more environmentally sustainable outcomes. So let me introduce the moderator for today, who will provide opening remarks and then introduce the other speakers and the program. Rhiannon Pyburn is a Netherlands CGIR partnership senior expert and senior advisor Gender and Agriculture at the Royal Tropical Institute or KIT as we sometimes refer to it. She was the coordinator of the gender platform while it was under PIM and now leads the PIM cluster where that work is being completed. Before handing it over to Rhianne, and let me mention how our webinar will work. The Q&A will be at the end of the program after all of the three speakers are finished. Throughout the three presentations, I encourage you to type in your questions in the chat window on the right side of your screen. Please type in your name and organization along with your question. We will compile them and try to organize them by theme before posing them to the speakers if there are many questions. Finally, we are recording the webinar and will make it available on the PIM website shortly after the event. So with that, over to you, Rhiannon.
1: Great, thanks so much, Frank. Uh, So indeed, the projects that are being presented today are three of six that were supported through this uh, work on gender and value chains. The initiative um, for these six projects it was started up to look at what we saw as a gap in the gender and value chains research that had been done to date. So the work that we were seeing was heavily focused on specific commodity chains and really at the production level. So these projects uh, are meant to address that gap. Uh, by looking at gender dynamics in value chains beyond the production level and or across multiple chains. So the different projects you'll be hearing from uh, this this morning, afternoon, evening are are addressing different elements of that. Uh, As Frank mentioned today, we're going to focus first and foremost on methods, uh, the methods used to explore gender dynamics beyond production level and across multiple chains we want to put a spotlight on methods because a lot of different methods and tools are being used uh, and so we thought this really merits some some further discussion um, and and some sharing also more publicly Uh, of course in order to share the methods uh, the presenters will also be sharing some context and background about the project overall and some of the research findings so we're going to hear from three of those projects today The first is on understanding the relationship between women's empowerment and women's increased participation in the poultry value chain or poultry value chains in Burkina Faso. Uh, Jessica Light, who is uh, based at the International Food Policy Research Institute, will be presenting that work. The second presentation is entitled From Oil Palm Mamas to Market Queens, measuring the gender footprint of informal and formal market chains. In Eastern Region Ghana. And Emily Gallagher from the Center for International Forest Research, forestry research, uh, will be presenting today. Uh, we also may hear from a colleague of hers uh, during the question and answer period. And the third presentation on agricultural value chain financing for marginalized women, a multi value chain project in Vietnam and Indonesia, will be presented by Kate Ambler, also from the International Food Policy Research Institute. Um as, as Frank mentioned, if you have any questions, please put them in the in the chat and we will come back to them at the end of the um at the, after the presentations. So thanks very much. And with that, I will pass over to Jessica. Jessica, it's all yours.
2: Great. Thank you so much for that introduction, Frank and Yannin. I'm happy today to be presenting evidence around the pathways linking salivate participation and women's increased participation in poultry chains in Burkina Faso. And this is joint work with a number of colleagues, Jessica Heckert, Alo Geli, and Joshua Awanon, all at IFPRI. Uh, Joshua recently moved to Tufts, and Dr. Rasmande Ganaba, who's at FXNTA in Burkina Faso. The research question that motivates this paper is to analyze the relative contributions of multiple dimensions of a program called CELEVE implemented in Burkina Faso with the objective of enhancing women's participation in poultry production and their decision-making around production and consumption of poultry-related projects. And Celevé, as a program, had many dimensions. Uh, Women were engaged in producer groups. There was training offered around both poultry husbandry and business-related questions. And there was also interaction with village vaccination volunteers and trainings around nutrition and gender. We're interested in understanding the contribution of each of these program dimensions to women's ownership, revenue, and profits in the poultry value chain. So Why are we interested in this question? Many integrated value chain interventions that target participation by women in agricultural production include many program elements that are rolled out simultaneously. Some might be at the community level, some at the household level, some might target women directly, some might target men or other stakeholders, but we don't know as much about the relative effectiveness of these different components. Identifying and prioritizing the most effective elements and understanding how they interact with one another can have meaningful implications for implementation and also cost effectiveness. So what are the methods that we're using in this analysis? Now, the broader project is a randomized controlled trial. So we have communities that were randomly assigned to receive, celebrate activities uh, for households to participate in, and some communities in which those activities weren't rolled out for the duration of this project. Here, we're moving beyond the randomized trial and the comparison across treatment and control communities to conduct some causal mediation, mediation analysis drawing on structural equation modeling with the objective of unpacking the role of these different components. And I'll be kind of discussing the the intuition behind that method. Causal mediation is a well-established method. It's widely used in cross-sectional and longitudinal analysis. Uh, But with an RCT designs, it's a relatively newer innovation. And in the context of an RCT, the goal of the method is to test the plausibility of potential impact pathways. So we're focusing on outcomes where we saw program impacts in the first step and then trying to unpack Uh, what the pathways were for those effects. This is relatively novel in in the literature. Let me tell you a a bit more about the underlying evaluation and the findings. There's much, much more to say, uh, but time is short. Uh, As I briefly noted, it's a cluster randomized trial included 120 villages in in rural Burkina Faso. They were randomly assigned to be included in CELEVATE programming or to serve as the control group. And tracking households over time, we saw that for women in communities where Celeve was offered, there was a significant increase in the number of poultry owned and in revenue and profits from poultry reported by women. So that's kind of the underlying pattern that we're seeking to unpack here. But how does causal mediation work? So, on the left of this slide, you can see the overall program impact without mediation that I just described. So we know that the program resulted in an increase in ownership of poultry and revenue and profits for women. On the right-hand side, we can visually depict the mediation analysis. So in addition to the program and the outcome, we now have mediators that are the third box And what SEM allows us to do is unpack the overall effect into these different paths. So there's an indirect effect via the mediator, which is A times B. There's a direct effect that's C prime, and the total effect is the sum of the two. And how do we estimate these paths? We do this using regression analysis uh, with kind of particular set of structural assumptions, regressing the mediator on the independent variable. In our case, that's just the treatment. So did you receive salivate or not? That allows us to estimate the value of path A. And then we use the outcome variable and regress it on the mediator to estimate b and c prime. So we can take this diagram and populate it with estimates that allow us to understand the the relative importance of each mediator. And again from an intuitive perspective and what's our goal, we want to understand what is the indirect effect Uh, of CELEVATE, that's mediated by program participation. Now program participation is modeled using observable variables. That's just whether the household reports that they participated in the dimensions of interest. Uh, That's poultry, nutrition, and gender are our three dimensions. And then there's a direct effect that's unmediated by participation. How do we think about that? I mean that could reflect a range of other factors. It could be community level spillovers, so you didn't participate yourself but you learned from neighbors. It could be market level effects, there were shifts in supply or demand, and it could be shifting attitudes or norms around women's engagement and poultry that you absorbed or heard about from neighbors. So the uh, And decomposing these two two parts, the indirect effect and the direct effect, helps us understand for a program like CELEVE that has many components and participation is voluntary, how much of the effect is driven by those who do actually participate, who choose to attend, and how much is driven by other effects in the community that might reach even those who chose not to attend or, or were not able to. And again, since this is a randomized design, we're confident that the direct effect doesn't reflect other differences in observable or unobservable characteristics comparing across the communities. So we know that on average, the treatment and control communities were the same. So here is a slightly more complex diagram that breaks down how we're analyzing this question. So again, you can see the three core components are the treatment variable on the left, the outcome variables on the right here we've highlighted poultry owned by women and revenue and on the top is our measure of poultry participation which is modeled as a latent variable and the specific the specific variables at the top are the variables that households reported on. So that they informed us whether they were members of a producers group, whether they participated in poultry training, uh, whether they participated in business training. Of course, there could be some inaccuracies there, uh, but those are the underlying reports that we used. And just to briefly preview the results, Using this method, we conclude that about 50% of the total effect of salivé on poultry owned by women is mediated by program participation. So that's actually lower than we thought. Uh, We had expected that to be higher, and that suggests that the remaining share is attributable to other program components, to interactions among the components, to spillover effects as we described, and we're continuing to explore this. So this methodology is allowing us to illuminate how the intervention is shifting households outcomes, and in particular, how important some of the indirect channels beyond direct program participation seem to be in this context. Thank you very much. I will wrap up my part there and pass it off to Emily Gallagher.
3: Thank you, Jessica, and um, good afternoon. And thank you to Rhiannon for facilitating us today. Uh, my name is Emily Gallagher. I'm a scientist with the Value Chains Finance and Investment team at C4. Um, the co-contributors are listed here, including Lydia Gatteri, who is joining us today for the Q&A. The talk is titled From Oil Palm Mamas to Market Queens with a focus today on presenting our steps towards developing gender footprinting methodology. So I'll begin with the conceptual framework, project background, research design and methodology, and actually the results have been removed for brevity, um, but I'm happy to discuss, and then we'll close with applications. So our idea for gender footprinting um, comes out of this larger body of literature on environmental and social footprinting, founded in human rights-based principles and sustainable development goals, and returning into full life cycle assessments to analyze environmental, economic, and social impacts of either the product system or the organization system. But sometimes, in fact, most times, we are interested in only a portion of the product life cycle. So a social footprint analysis, therefore, for is a measure of a social sustainability performance of a company, an organization, or a set of value chain actors in the production of a commodity. It is often described as a company or commodity footprint leaving a mark on earth or on communities. Um, it allows us to compare the effects of a product or organization system within a sector or compare the relative size of a changing footprint over time. So social footprint analysis, and this is important, describes both positive and negative impacts, positive being social opportunities and negative being social risks. More recently, the language is shifting such that footprint implies a negative imprint on the earth or communities and a handprint is to describe the positive impacts, giving more agency to positive outcomes. Next slide, please. So. Um, Social footprints basically represent a measurement on specific indicators or composite indicators. They imply a spatial component, but this is less often the case with social data presented as a set of metrics or graphs. There is no common guideline, but there are several standards which I'll get to. Um, And with respect to gender, indicators are largely limited to metrics for um, equal opportunities, non-discrimination, following sustainability standards models. Importantly, um, there are global coordinated efforts that are increasingly relying on global data sets from the global market, from the global trade model, for example, um, and ongoing push-pull between those who advocate for enterprise-level analysis and those seeking online models. So our project aims to contribute to these communities of practice working at the organizational system or enterprise levels to specifically bring a gender dimension and gender disaggregated approach to social footprinting. Um, So, if we could move to slide five. Um, We developed and piloted a diagnostic tool to support enterprise development with respect to ethical sourcing and decent work environments and gender empowerment, equity, and inclusion, as well as intersectoral development planning. Slide six. So, the product of interest is palm oil. The process system is oil or the palm oil value chain. Our project is based in Ghana where oil palm is indigenous and palm oil is a major part of the Ghanaian diet. Um, very briefly, the oil palm palm oil economy in Ghana is a highly organized, has a highly organized formal sector with large estates, factories, mills, and contract farming schemes. And it also still maintains this vibrant informal milling sector, which is only grown with the growth of the companies. So the formal and informal sectors are selling to different buyers, but they are competing for raw materials. And this has placed the producers in an enviable situation where they can shop for services incentives, and incentives from different mills. Um, And where we can impact that different value chains and business models have on value chain actors. Slide seven to the title of our presentation, we chose the oil palm palm oil value chain to test our approach because it is highly gendered value chain. The production node has traditionally been in the domain of men and the midstream value chain nodes in the domain of women as farm gate buyers, artisanal and processors. Value chain upgrading with capital assets has led to more control by men at the midstream nodes. It means the strong empowerment discourse around women's roles as oil palm mamas and market queens while the king oil comes from the estate farms. Slide eight, our research questions center around our methodology to conduct a gender value chain analysis and design an approach to gender footprinting. Next slide. The first step is to, analyze, is to determine our area of protection and the extent of our footprint analysis. The footprint is centered on the miller processor node and examines the upstream and downstream effects of participation with different types of millers. Slide 10. Our study area is in one district in the eastern region of Ghana. The district is dominated by oil pump compared to the surrounding districts with traditional cocoa systems. Slide 11. So the methodology includes seven steps, which I will introduce one by one. Slide 12. The first step is a gender value chain analysis, which included market surveys to map the prevalence and consumer prices of different palm oil products across the district, key informant interviews with companies, artisanal millers, research institutes, and district agriculture offices and in 750 household surveys across the district to map the distribution of different types of value chain actors and the products they are producing. So we're skipping the results here and moving on to slide 13. The second step involved a literature review to select our indicators. We narrowed down the selection of these global initiatives which have involved significant participation from social life cycle assessment scholars and practitioners as well as the corporate sector. So we have included um, social life cycle assessment to um, select a set of impact categories. This comes from UNEP-CTAC. We compared this to the Global Resources Inventory Standards, uh, which comes from the private sector for social and environmental disclosures, and then sustainability standards, really focused on fair trade, for which C4 has already conducted a review of their gender strategy. Um, We also included the Women's Empowerment Agriculture Index for Market Inclusion. Sorry, um, typo there. Um, And then we um, pulled together the key informant interviews and asked... stakeholders to rank the relevant salience of these impact categories to their business function. And then from this, we made our final selection. Slide 14 shows our impact categories, which include both material and empirical questions as well as the perception-based questions. Um, We addressed these to different stakeholder categories. The main stakeholder categories included workers of mills and farmers sourcing to these mills. Next slide. Then we added an intra-household module, which we appended to the main survey for workers and farmers, and added the stakeholder category of spouse, domestic partner, or opposite same-sex counterpart from the same household to study the household level effects. Slide 16. The third step was to select our case studies. We had three formal sector palm oil millers and three informal sector. For the formal sector, the three active companies in the district had very different business models. For the informal sector, we categorized the RT mills from the key informant interviews into three groups and selected a representative model of each. Next slide. Um, The fourth step was to conduct an enterprise interview with the management or owners of the six case study mills. Um, These were largely trying to understand how each enterprise is organized from within. Um, we did not try to map out the entire business model um, due to the um, company concerns about sharing uh, details. Uh, we then tagged who does um, which job by male, female, age, class, etc., and then asked questions which mirror the main impact categories, asking the managers, owners about the business practices and social risk categories. In the interest of time, I'm gonna slip slides, skip slides 18 and 19. Let's go to 20. Um, The fifth step was the survey administration. Um, again, um, entering from the miller processor with the companies, we had their opportunity structure and the list of their labor roles. We requested um, a list of men and women um, engaged in these roles and did a sub selection from those lists. Um, we repeated the same for farmers. With the artisanal mills, we interviewed all of the processors and all of the direct hires. Um, we also interviewed casual workers and farmers um, that were working with each of the oil palmamas, mamas, um, the processors. So um, at this stage, we are currently analyzing the data on each impact category, subcategory, and indicator um, to decide how to use it in the subsequent analysis. Next slide. The sixth step of our protocol is a validation and gender workshop. Um, We invited eight to 10 participants from each survey to participate focus groups. Um, we presented them with the opportunity structure. Um, the survey results asked for validation and facilitated discussion on the gender dynamics. Then we more explicitly transitioned to discussing gender norms, opportunities, and risks associated with different labor roles. Um, we used the gender labor bar, which you see here, to probe for male-female dominant roles or shared roles, um, and then how these roles have changed over time. Finally, we close with a discussion about why the worker has chosen this mill over the dozens of choices in the district. Next slide, 22. The final. Is to conduct a hotspot analysis, and this is where we are working out our methodology at the moment. The social life cycle assessment community has a social hotspot database led by um, a research team in New York. Um, they use an approach for set threshold categories for social risks based on global data and conducting a hotspot analysis on the threshold categories. We are aiming to use an approach common to ArcGIS and other spatial analyst tools, um, the Get Us or the GI star, which identifies clusters of high values or hotspots and low values, which are cold without setting a threshold. Whether these these clusters are more pronounced than expected from a random distribution and statistically significant. We're at the stage of analyzing the data on each indicator, descriptive stats, and then set up our protocol for the spatial hotspots. Uh, Finally, moving to slide 23. Um, So once we've developed this protocol, what are we doing with it? As part of a larger project, we have launched an oil palm working group where we will share the outputs from the study, the enterprise reports, maps, and outcomes from the hotspot analysis. From there, we aim to do a review of the impact categories, subcategories, and indicators to develop a more parsimonious tool and whether or how to that thresholds. Um, how to scale the analysis to other enterprises or value chains. Uh, the results of the study then will be integrated into an oil palm development strategy for the district, which is to be presented next year.
0: Value chains mirrors.
3: Um, and uh, thank you and welcome your questions.
4: Thanks, um, Emily. Um, so I'll be talking about a project on agricultural value chain financing for marginalized women. Um, next slide, please. So this, ba- this project has a long history. It was a large project um, which we designed to study financial access in the value chain um, in two countries, Vietnam and Indonesia, with a focus on marginalized women. Um, So the idea of this project was to do um, a lot of desk work and and in-country work on policies to understand needs and then to design and implement um, the evaluation of a couple randomized control trials studying the impacts of financing programs. Um, Given the uh, global events over the last couple years, some of that portion has been delayed. And so we expect um, those impact studies to be going into the
0: field. the end of this of the 2030
4: Um, so in the meantime our current focus has been learning from existing data so i think ideally i would have been talking to you about um, impact evaluation methods but instead i'm going to talk a little bit about um, what we can do to get the most out of existing data um, on these topics and 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 it's been a really instructive exercise to inform um, you know what we need to still learn and how we can change the surveys that we do Uh, next slide please um, so as part of this exercise, we looked at three sources of data to, to study the financial constraints affecting uh, micro, small, and medium enterprises in the agri-food system with a focus on gender differentiation. Um, and so I'm talking about startup capital, which is like the thing that we were able to hone in on in, in these surveys um, because there is a sort of limited information on financing and access to finance. We use the World Bank Enterprise Surveys to look at, um, you know, uh, at the firm level. And so these are surveys that uh, look at firms that have at least five employees. Um, We also looked at two household surveys, the Indonesian Family Life Survey and the Vietnam Access to Resources Household Survey. Uh, Mostly I'll be focusing on those latter two um, in the brief. results that I'll show today. So we find that startup capital for women-owned businesses is five times lower than for men-owned businesses. Um, so women are likely to own lower cost business types. So like, a you know, a, a business that you think would, w- the type of business that would require lower startup costs, um, but the pattern pers- does persist within the business. Uh, next slide, please. Um, So you can see here, we're looking at by the two countries, Indonesia and Vietnam, um, for food industry, food services, and agricultural businesses. Um, And you can see that the distribution um, of the startup costs uh, for men is definitely um, indicating that in general, men are operating businesses that have um, higher startup costs. Uh, Next slide, please. And so when we think about those startup costs, um, we can also look at the source of the capital um, that that the women are accessing, and we can see that that source of capital also differs. So women are far less likely to be accessing formal credit to get those funds that they need to start their businesses. Next slide. And you can see that here, um, we're showing in in the Indonesia sample uh, for for male businesses. Um, the green bar shows the startup capital that is taken from savings or from family is much higher than that for women and also from bank or external source um, dwarfs that for women. Additionally, we find um, in Vietnam you see the same uh, the same pattern that men are much more likely to have borrowed uh, capital in order to start up a business in the agri-food sector. Um, so, this leaves us with some questions um, in this area. Of course, we don't know if it's that women are choosing to operate businesses with lower capital um, and therefore they don't need access to credit or they're being sort of forced into that type of business because they can't access
0: the capital Just to provide jobs and income businesses. Um, So there's just very limited
4: information and this shows us that we need to collect better and more detailed information on access to finance, um, you know, beyond the production node of the the agri-food system and particularly to look at it by gender. Next slide. Uh, So uh, just to touch off of that, I've been involved in some other work that I think is illustrative to this point. that looks at gender and finance in the midstream of the agricultural value chain um, and that we've been doing similar desk work, um, looking at what we know, what we don't know, but not limited to Vietnam and Indonesia. Um, So this specifically has focused on the agricultural midstream. And we, again, have used World Bank Enterprise Surveys to identify midstream firms within those. For the
0: poor and marginalized.
4: In the the universe of firms that are documented in the enterprise surveys. And we study access to finance in the agricultural sector in seven African countries. Um, We find that firms with female managers have fewer employees, lower sales, fewer bank accounts, and less access to loans and credit. Um, So this limited information that we can access does show that women um, are having trouble accessing finance, you know, within this sector. But there's still much more that we we need to learn. Uh, Next slide. Uh, So, just to speak to the methodological challenges, um, first, just identifying the businesses that we're interested in looking at, sorting firms by sector and by value chain node is extremely challenging in survey data. Um, You know, you get limited information. so even to know if the firm is involved in agriculture or not, it's like say they're they're indicated as they work in transportation. It's hard to say, you know, like what they're transporting. So it's hard to know how to classify them. At the same time, if someone's, you know, doing sales, you're not necessarily sure if they're a trader or a farmer just selling their goods. So sometimes it can be very challenging and time consuming um, to effectively classify firms, which makes it difficult to understand Um, the needs uh, along the value chain. It's also very difficult to sample micro, small, medium and large businesses consistently uh, because of the different ways in which you may pick them up. Micro and small businesses are often informal and they might not get picked up in these like World Bank enterprise surveys that require a larger number of employees. So we have to turn to something like the LSMS um, to try to use the household enterprise module um, to get at those firms, but that has its own challenges. Uh, so we don't necessarily know that we're getting a representative sample of those, of those businesses and different households may classify them differently. It's difficult to understand employment within those household businesses um, and the list goes on. So like a lot more attention needs to be un- put on understanding how we can really classify employment and business ownership in this sector. Understanding women's roles is also challenging. Um, I have some recent work um, in a number of different contexts uh, using survey, studying survey methodology that suggests that surveys are really prone to underestimating women's activities, um, that there's a lot of biases baked into the ways in which people answer surveys and sometimes the ways in which surveys are designed um, that can just lead us to underestimate women's activities relative to men uh, and so we may not have a full understanding of women's roles in these businesses, um, which they you know, that can uh, have knock on effects um, to understanding like what they need in terms of finance um, in order to grow their businesses um, so if we can't understand women's employment, moving to understand their contributions to household businesses um, is also you know has the same types of issues. And then finally, when we look at existing surveys, there's just very little information on finance. It has not been a focus of many of these of surveys that look um at business development. Um, but now as as the as the world is changing and there's so much new um, technologies so many new technologies that are coming out into the agricultural sector especially using digital platforms and trying to connect farmers and midstream actors in new and innovative ways on finance so
0: let me introduce the moderator credit
4: but also just payments um, payment histories uh, connecting buyers and sellers um, in all sorts of ways Uh, so understanding much more about how people access finance um both traditionally and in evolving uh ways in the in um in our new digital world is a key component of um of what we need to do as we look forward to changing the way um surveys are designed and i believe that is my last slide nope next step sorry (laughs) um so just To wrap up this project, next uh, we'll be implementing impact evaluations of our finance projects in Vietnam and Indonesia over the next year. Um, And we're also um, in this related work, we'll be developing surveys to study midstream finance directly in two countries. So in both cases, as we implement our surveys um, and study the impact of financing programs, we'll be paying special attention to gender and known biases to try and improve upon and learn what we can do to Better answer these questions out where we found these gaps exist. So thank you. Great, thanks so
1: much, Kate, and thanks to all of our presenters today. Um, I'd like to invite you to put your cameras back on as we move into the 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 Q and A portion. And to the the um, the people watching the webinar, please remember you can add your questions in the chat, and we can incorporate them into those that we um, pose to the presenters. Uh, So let's start with a question uh, for Jessica. Um, The question is to understand the effects of
0: putting remarks and then introduce the other species
1: embed these into their set of treatments. So for example, treatments including or excluding different elements. What are the pros and cons of using that approach versus the causal mediation approach that you used?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So that is a really valuable strategy. And I would argue that's probably the gold standard for evidence of the effects of different components, because it actually can generate randomized variation and the salience of different program components. The challenge is that then you need a large experiment with a large sample. So it has cost and feasibility. Implications. And particularly if you have a program like this one that has three, four, five different important components, depending on how you categorize them, that would become a very large trial, or you would have to choose kind of only one component that perhaps is of primary interest to vary. Another potential risk with that type of design is that uh, if the response by participants to the different program variations is relatively similar, you may not actually see large differences across the treatment arms. So I think given a complex project, a complex program and limitations on the size of the trial, causal mediation is a valuable tool that allows you to try to unpack the effect of a whole range of components, even when you're not able to run a trial large enough to separately evaluate each one.
1: Great, thank you. Uh, And then for Emily, um, can you talk a little bit more, can you explain more on how the hotspot analysis will be used by stakeholders and are there other types of hotspots, for example, climate change or demographic pressure um, that could simultaneously be assessed and used in these discussions?
3: Yes, thank you. Um, Actually, if you, um, on the study area map, we had a hotspot analysis um, and the way we identified our project area from six countries um, for the larger study was uh, looking at deforestation hotspots. So it is a really common tool um, and-
0: GIR partnership senior expert.
3: So this is a small gender component, or small gender project that we were, putting together as co-funding for a larger project. So that larger project does look at some of these environmental hotspots. We are interested in um, zero deforestation commodities. Um, So what we see with these um, oil palm mills is that they are using a lot of fuel wood and um, also have a lot of emissions. So there is an interest in modeling those things as well. Um, And that's with University of Lancaster. Um, So our project brings in the
0: and senior advisor gender dimension to it.
1: Great, thank you. Another one for Emily. Um, How similar or dissimilar are social indicators compared to public sector created ones like those of UNEP uh, versus private sector developed uh, indicators? Are there some key differences that you could um, draw our attention to?
3: Yeah that's a good question. I um so we we began this process by trying to decide uh, where where to begin. And um, there is this large uh, UNEP-CTAC community that brought together um, this huge community of practice to develop um, these uh, impact categories, subcategories, and the indicators that go with it. But they really were very vague on the measurements. So um, really, how do you go about measuring um, for that indicator? Uh, as I understand, that has been in review since 2019, and it should be um, published shortly. But it is a massive document, it's a massive undertaking, and in practice nobody really uses it in its fullness, um, probably because a lot of the the steps beyond having the categories have not been um, um, really explicit. So then we started looking also at what companies are willing to use because we do want this to be a tool that's useful for the oil palm working group. and a lot of the impact categories and subcategories overlap a lot. Um, we did get a lot more detail about how to actually measure. Um, so looking at, um, you know, really the big categories like occupational health and safety um, and and what which kind of count data, what are we counting, what
0: times refer to it. She-
3: um, when it got to um, beyond the, the workplace practices, um, and uh, more to some of the social and perception indicators, this is where it really differed. And um, again, we we still found gaps and needed to pull in the the pro way to get at some of the the gender indicators and and perceptions of of gender uh, gender norms. Um, so yes, the uh, to, long story short, the impact categories are very similar. Um, at the subcategory level, they um, are, are still similar when we get down to
0: the coordinator of the gender platform.
3: We found the um, private sector standards to be more explicit and then also using sustainability standards because they have to get audited on these. There was where we were able to pull out some actual measurements.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, And and for Kate. Do data exist to study financing comparisons between men and women to know if the startup capital differences persist over time? Um, And are there other methodological challenges in studying the use of financing over the life cycle of an enterprise? Sorry, could you repeat the first part? I was. Yeah. So, do data exist to study financing comparisons between men and women to know if the startup capital differences pers- persist over time?
4: Um, well, uh, not the overtime question, I guess, is difficult. I mean, when you're thinking about startup capital for a particular business, that would be like a one-time measure. But, um uh so in that sense i guess it's the
0: PIM cluster where that works
4: but uh we would need um if we're thinking just about following the same businesses or following the same people to see if they're like moving in and out of business ownership like if you had a lsms survey with a panel component you could look at that, or you could just, you know, take um, an LMS survey, look at repeated cross sections for the median, small and medium businesses, um, and I think the, the enterprise surveys, um, you know, are done with some amount of frequency. I'd have to check on how how often. I don't recall at the top of my head. Um,
0: is being completed.
4: So, I mean, I think that the answer is like sort of but again, it would have all the same caveats of like the work that I just showed so it wouldn't be like ideal in terms of like if we want to actually track the financial history of a certain business. And like how, you know, whether they get access to credit to like expand their businesses and that sort of thing. I don't really think we have like a lot of good surveys like that, you know, we've been working in another project on trying to like look at what data actually exists that like targets midstream businesses and things like that. And it's there's very, very little um, that specifically look at those types of enterprises even, you know, for ad hoc type projects. And I don't know of any off the top of my head that would be like a panel survey that could like look at how businesses, there might be some that are like impact evaluations that have befores and afters, but not necessarily in the agricultural sector, probably only um, in like urban um, semi-environments.
1: Okay, good, thank you, thanks. And I had um, a correction pop up as well that, Indeed, it was about the differences over time, not around the, the, the startup.
0: Let me mention how our webinar will work. Um,
1: good, so if thinking about across all of the four projects, or through the three projects that uh, we were hearing from today, I know you're at different stages in the analysis and in the field work and so on, so maybe it's a, um, a, a difficult to assess already, but are there things that you would like to, to have done differently or that you would think should be done differently given what you know uh, now and and the the place you're in and the research in relation to the methods that you used? That's open for anybody or for all of you actually.
3: (laughs) I guess I'd like to speak to the idea of working at the midstream node. Um, You know, we've, we've typically worked with producers and when we work with companies, um, oftentimes we're working with contract farmers or farmers tied to these companies. Um, it was really a challenge working at the um, at this processing node and um, getting the the sample size um, because we were interfering in the workplace. Um, and we you know we had two options: either they do it during working hours, or we um, find them after hours. Um, And so we were trying to work while they were working and then trying to find their partners for the Pro way portion of the of the survey. A lot of them were migrant workers. Their families were outside the districts, so we were having to call. So just really entering from that midstream node affected our ability to do the sampling the way that we're used to doing with farmers, where you enter communities and everybody is right there and you can follow them to the field or wait till they get home, but um, it really was- The
0: three speakers are finished.
3: Never have I felt like I was- um, Interrupting somebody's work and maybe detracting from their income for that day, um, as I have mm. during this study, it was it was really a challenge.
1: Yeah, thanks, Emily. For Kate or Jessica,
4: what about for you? Um, that's a, I've, I, <laughs> um, well, so we're still haven't really put our impact evaluation into the field, so hopefully I haven't yet made any mistakes um
0: throughout the three presentations
4: <laughs> when we get to designing the survey uh you know um and like in just in working with the existing data i wouldn't say um you know we just been stuck with sort of what is there in the work that we've been doing that's kind of related that is actually like um studying methods by by doing experiments or variations in surveys in the field to try and get a better understanding of these things. I think it is actually um, very tricky to anticipate um, how you're going to end up analyzing the data and like you make, you know, I
0: always wish I had encourage you to type in your questions and something
4: a little bit differently prior to um, to putting it in the field to be able to get the exact question that we're Looking at, I don't think that's like um unique necessarily to this particular um question, but um uh, you know, just like, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have a great answer, I no, feel fine. like <laughs> <laughs> I do regret some things, but not nothing um uh nothing great and uh
0: chat window on the right side of your screen
4: this um long interval, like having, you know, especially focused on Vietnam, we haven't really been able to do a lot of field work, um, make progress um, because of travel restrictions. Uh, I I expect that this long period we've been doing other things will make our data collection better because we have thought about it so much more than we typically would have had spent time on doing it. So that's like one silver lining on a very dark cloud.
1: (laughs) Great, okay, thanks, Kate. Good, Jessica, do you wanna respond to that one also?
2: Sure. I have a relatively simple, uh,
0: please type in your name and how
2: this type of complex programming targeting value chain participation or targeting other outcomes unfolds. I think it can be useful to draw on a wider range of reports just about participation. We typically rely on household reports, you know, did you attend a training or are you part of a group? Uh, But we find certainly in more informal discussions that uh, partners who are implementers in the field often have a very different perception of the level of participation or the type of participation, uh, and that, of course, can be very meaningful for an exercise like this, where we're using organization along with your question, who did what to actually unpack the pathways for the intervention. So even simple strategies like having other monitoring systems to compile attendance reports or estimates of who's participating, what type of activity seems low cost and would be a really useful addition to the type of information we usually have in our household surveys.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, so questions come in also for Kate from uh, Martin Van Hinkle. Um The question is, although women-run enterprises are smaller, is their relative return on investment maybe still higher than those run by men?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um... I don't know the answer to that question. That's a good thing that we should—that's, you know, a question that we
0: will compile them and try to organize that.
4: Uh, there is some, like, evidence, um, you know, outside the agricultural sector that suggests that might be true. Look, having looked at cash transfers, but it's quite, like, it is mixed. Um, I don't think that's an answer that—that's a question we really have an answer to, and I suspect it's context specific. But I think when we think about agriculture these things are very understudied um, as when we, you know, when we think about women doing work and even men businesses in
0: this sector. So by theme before posing them to the speaker,
4: hopefully there's more, I think there's a lot more attention now to like the non-farm agricultural sector as like a driver for growth and women's empowerment in particular and the extent to which that's true now is um unclear to me but I think there is a lot of opportunity there so hopefully we can learn more hey. and I will just add I want to echo what Emily was saying about working in the midstream it is like very difficult to do research um like because with farmers you can easily interview a thousand or 2000 farmers but with like midstream bit there are many questions to like Sampling situation, but also just like getting enough businesses to be able to really understand what's going on can be very complicated because to do Well, you know, I'm a quantitative research to do quantitative research. You need sample size. And so sometimes when you have big businesses, there's like not enough to un- understand these things. So it's just like another another um, Thing that makes it difficult.
1: <laughs> Great, thanks. Uh, For Jessica, there's a question just come in uh, also. Um, In these types of impact evaluations, the results can indicate whether or not to scale up and how, but how far can those recommendations go since large scaling up could have offsetting effects like on prices, which may not give the same impacts as in a pilot study? Could you respond to that one? Yeah, that's a huge
2: challenge, certainly for interventions that are trying to encourage production of um, a certain type of commodity. Of course, if that uh, intervention was highly effective on a large scale you you could affect you
0: could expect. and we'll make it available on the pim website
2: answer you can certainly supplement the evaluation with other types of analysis using existing descriptive data market analysis qualitative analysis in this case for example there was kind of an underlying theory based on previous research that the real constraint in this market was supply that demand was high and sort of unfulfilled so there was pres- presumptively some uh, Space for expansion without price effects. Of course, that theory can't be applied infinitely. Uh, it depends a lot. It depends a lot on the scale.
0: Shortly after the event,
2: so contextual analysis that might help you understand what potential spillover effects are. Uh, a number of organizations have, kind of, I think, become increasingly skilled in continuing to embed research in larger scale up. So assuming that you don't go from a pilot in 120 villages to a nationwide program, then there are some intervening steps where there can be more rollout, more expansion, more research to understand not just what general equilibrium effects are via prices or markets, but also if the implementation of the program itself changes when it's at scale and almost always the answer is yes it, it does change in, in different ways so that
0: with that over to you Rhiannon
2: our research path can be a valuable opportunity you know if it's available given the broader context in this case the program is uh, continuing and expanding and we are also embedding some additional kind of more focused implementation research in the next phase uh, so hopefully that will be a, a good opportunity to,
1: to learn more great okay thanks very much for your response. We have just a couple of minutes before I, I turn to Frank for his, uh, his his final reflections. Do you have any questions for each other about your other your uh, your colleagues' uh, methods and how they've um, how they've undertaken the research? <laughs> no questions. We've talked Thanks. so much over
3: the last year. It's it's, it's yeah. I've just it's been a pleasure to learn from all of you, and um, I look I look for, I, I wish we could have done this all in person. Uh, 2020 changed the dynamic, um, but it's it's been really great to learn across institutions, the nature of everybody's work, and then um, hopefully we have the discussion at the end about how to do the cross learning. Because I remember Rihanna and you at our first meeting.
1: Uh, so indeed the projects um
3: how where we thought the synergies would be it would be nice to revisit those and and see if we can still find them
1: yeah indeed yeah and i think as you say the path has been a a, a very different one than we imagined at the, at the outset um and far fewer moments to um to meet face to face and share uh yeah share experiences and ideas and, and look at the synergies but um, yeah I think some things have still come out so that's <laughs> that's also really good to see in terms of cross project learning. Good. Well with that I will um I will uh, ask Frank to come back on and just share some uh, final okay. reflections with with it. That's all. Okay.
0: Well I have no not too much more to say but I yeah I I also finally remember the <clears throat> first meeting we had in Amsterdam when uh getting everyone together in the same on the same houseboat or something. I forget yeah. what it was actually. <laughs> but uh, that was that was very nice and I'm really glad that it did work out. We had a little bit of a rocky start in terms of uh, making sure we had the right uh, financing for everyone. So that, so everybody got off to a bit later start than hoped for um, in 2020 and we had three of six that were supported. I'm um, grateful to the to, to three here and the other three uh, uh, case study leaders uh, for actually persisting and pursuing and getting getting the work done in a very short time frame and I think, as I said in the opening remarks, you know, I think the, the one CGR, we're really trying to explore how to transform food systems, water systems, land systems. And we're, we're trying to create a, um, a number of initiatives that are trying to aim to have multiple impacts in different impact areas, including gender equality is a big one now for the CGIR. And I think these studies also
1: work on gender and value. And
0: in, in, in resources, uh, at least from our side, uh, sometimes they fit into a larger one, as, as Emily's Jessica's cases, but I think they all um, really demonstrate how to tr- try to bring together different um, uh, research strands for for trying to t- achieve multiple um, uh, gains and outputs. So we, we have a lot that are looking at gender equality, but poverty at the same time, or jobs at the same time. Or environment at the same time, or nutrition at the same time, and I think that's really kind of the the way going forward. So I think these are all all very um, useful studies and can help uh, position this, the the CGIR for for doing better and greater things in the future, uh, more coherently and collectively across the system. So thanks.
1: The initiative
0: and for, for moderation as well.